All right, well, good morning. It is great to see you guys. Thank you for joining us online as well. Really appreciate that. Uh, we feel you out there, so it's awesome. I-, I love what Ryan had to say during the worship time, man. I thought that was really, really great. You know, you start thinking about, or at least I was thinking about all the things that God says that he inhabits. You know, he inhabits us, right, by his spirit. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. I inhabit the praise of my people, he says. There's something powerful about that. And that story, as he said, it's like when, it says that when they started to sing, God turned all of these armies that had gathered against them against each other, and then they just wiped themselves out. It was remarkable, amazing. And it fits very well with what we're going to be talking about today. So as we jump back into our study of the book of Isaiah today, here's what I want to do. I want to go 750 years forward in time from when Isaiah lived all the way into the New Testament. And I want to go to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And I want to look at what he says there. And the reason I say that is because Peter identifies a problem in his first century day that 750 years earlier, Isaiah and the people of God had in their day. And by the way, that 2,000 years after Peter, we still have today. And what I want to do is I want to identify the problem. I'm going to put it on the table. We're going to look at it and hopefully we'll own it together. So the problem is this. It is that we say with our mouths that we trust in God and then he is our only hope. And that's not true. That's the problem. Or at least it's not entirely true. It's not true to the degree that it needs to be. And and look, you know, I mean, it's not sinister on our part. Like we're not out to intentionally deceive anybody. We're not going, I'm going to say this, but really it's going to be this. This this is the actual truth. I just want everybody to think this, but but this is the actual truth about me. The reality is we say this and we mean it when we say it. And then we look at our lives or maybe we don't, but everyone else does. And they go, yeah, yeah, you say that, but you're just as lost as I am. You're just as upset as I am. You're just as disconcerted as I am and disoriented as I am. Like, you're not tethered to anything any more solid than I am. In other words, I hear what you say, and then I look at your life, and I go, yeah, that's okay. You don't need to tell me about your God. Think about that. Because when you think about it, you realize that nothing short of the name of the Lord is at stake in this conversation. Listen to what Peter says. He says, but in your hearts, all right, like just, let's stop there for a second. What does that even mean? Because it's not the blood pumping organism in our chest. What is the heart in the Bible? The heart in the Bible is the command center of your life. It is the very center of your being. Everything flows out of the heart. All of your, all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your actions, every decision you make, all of your values, all of your motives, the whole shooting match comes out of the heart. It is the core of your life. He's going, okay, that part of you, that most important part of you in your heart, honor Christ the Lord, how? As holy, which sounds amazing, like that's tremendous language. What does that mean? Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. How do I do that? Like, what is he saying? He's saying at the core of your being, honor Christ the Lord, regard to Christ the Lord, live as if Christ the Lord is separate from everything and everyone else. He is other than everything and everyone else. He is different from everything and everyone else. He's saying, listen, when it comes to this matter of who and what you can trust in, who and what you can hope in, all right, look, the world comes and it gives you a menu. And there are all these options, and you know what the options are. You can choose from the menu. Just know that Jesus is not on the menu. He stands above the whole world with all of its people 
all of its problems and its menu. And Peter's going, please, guys, regard him, honor him, worship him, live for him as different. He's not the same. He's not another option. He's the only option for God's people. And he's like, and when you start to do that, not just with your lips, but with your lives, well, then you need to always be prepared, he says, to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you. Why? Because when it's not just your lips that are saying, God is my hope, I trust in him, but it's your life because it's coming out of the core of who you are. It shows up in your motives. It shows up in your actions. It shows up in your decisions. It shows up in your generosity. It shows up in everything you do. Okay, then people are going to go, you're tethered to something else. <laughs> I see the day, like I hear what you're saying and now I'm believing you. Like I, you're saying something about a God and, and you want me to go to Alpha. Like I'll go. Like I see the difference. So here I come now. What's the difference? If they're not asking us what the difference is, which is a question we can each ask ourselves individually, you're welcome. Then they're looking and going, hearing what you're saying, watching what you're doing. Not interested. Not interested. Listen to what John Piper says. He wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. Don't, don't miss that. That's like an amazing title. He says, why don't people ask us about our hope? The answer is probably that we look as if we hope in the same things that they do. And apparently Isaiah agrees. I mean, like he's dealing with the same issue in his day. After giving us that amazing story that we looked at two Sundays ago, where Isaiah walks into, if you will, the temple of God, and he sees a vision of the Lord God himself. There he is. He's seated on the throne. He is high and exalted, like the train of his robe, filling the temple. It's transformational for him. Coming directly out of that, what does he give us in this book? The story of two different kings. Ahaz, who we looked at last week, who is challenged to trust God and doesn't. Hezekiah, who we look at today, who is challenged to trust God and does. And the way these stories are written, you realize, okay, so he's writing this in such a way as to draw me to compare these two because there's just so many parallels between the two. I mean, for starters, they're father and son, right? So Ahaz is the father of Hezekiah. Both of them in their day are the king of Judah. Ahaz first, Hezekiah after Ahaz's death. Both of them see their whole territory of Judah, this southern nation, if you will, of Israel. You've got the northern kingdom and this is the southern kingdom. They see the invading armies come in and absolutely wreck it take all of their nation away from them except for the city of Jerusalem. In both cases, the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by these invading armies. And in both cases, these guys run to the world's menu of options and try as many of them as they can. Both of them. They both reach out to foreign nations for help. So Ahaz reaches out to the nation of Assyria and says, come save me, you know, and they don't. Hezekiah reaches out to the nation of Egypt and says, come, save me. And they don't. They both try to buy their way out of it. That's another option. Like they take all of their own personal treasure, they pile it up, and then on top of that, they strip the temple of God of its gold, for example. Like they literally take the gold off the doors of the temple, pile all of this stuff and go, here, maybe this will help. And it doesn't. And in both of these stories, both of these kings have their trust and faith in God. Is he going to be your hope or is he not going to be your hope? Challenged, physically speaking, at exactly the same location. 
This pool of water, this spring outside the city of Jerusalem, outside of its walls, Ahaz is challenged by Isaiah who comes to him and says, look, you know that menu that the world gives you and it got all the options and I know you're trying a few and you're tempted to try another? You just tear that thing up. Get rid of that thing. It's not going to work. And I love this. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Why? Because the stuff on the menu is fickle. The stuff on the menu fluctuates. The stuff on the menu are tied to people who may or may not be as committed as you might like them for them to be. You know what I mean? Like the stuff on the menu cannot give you what you're looking for. He's like, listen, there is God, and he alone is the immovable object. And then there's everything else, and they move, and they disappear, and they go away, and they come and go. Like, you cannot rely on this. You can rely on this. And Ahaz says, yeah, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about my options on the menu. So he goes that particular route. Hezekiah is challenged by the right-hand man of the king of Assyria, who comes as his spokesman, speaking the language of the people of Jerusalem. And in that language challenges not just Hezekiah, but all the people of Jerusalem who are penned up inside of the city walls and are up on the walls watching and listening. Very strategic move. And he's brilliant. He just begins to lay out his argument. But you know what his closing argument is? He says, guys, you heard what happened in Syria, right? Like we surrounded the city of Damascus and then they didn't want to surrender, which is what we're asking you guys to do. Trust me, that would be the best move on your part at this point. I mean, it doesn't guarantee your safety, but it'll be better for you if you do this. They decided not to. So we attacked them. We destroyed the city. Uh, We took the king and all of his leaders and we impaled them. Like, if you don't know what that means, that means we put a stake in the ground and we sharpened the point and then we inserted it into their body and we slid them down the pole which is a great way to die because it doesn't really disrupt a lot of the vital organs. So you, you're there for a while. So imagine that. We beheaded all their soldiers. We beheaded most of their men. We took all their wives and children as our concubines and slaves. We've deported a bunch of them. We've brought some of our people in. We've taken all of their wealth and all of their possessions and everything away from these guys. Like, that's what we did to the king of Assyria. So here's my question, says the spokesman of the King of Assyria, did the God of Assyria or Syria, did, did the God of Syria, did the God of Damascus uh, prevent us from doing that? Because that's a hard no. Hey, you know what? I got a list. What about the God of Tyre? Because we just destroyed them too. Did, did that God stop us from doing that? Uh, no. What about the God of Egypt? You know, you did reach out to Egypt. Egypt did send up an army and then we destroyed the Egyptian army already. So they're not coming. Newsflash for you. But did their gods, did, they, did those gods save them? No. What about the gods of the Philistines? Because we just swallowed them up. No. What about the gods of Israel to your north? Don't they worship your God? By the way, the answer to that was no. But apparently, they did. Did your God, who you're trusting in right now, save them? No. What about the rest of the land of Judah? We just rolled through, man. We just swallowed up towns, fortress cities. Like, we've gotten everything but this city. It's all ours. Are they not people like you? Are they not part of your nation? Are they not under the governance of your king who wants you to trust in this God? I mean, 
Good grief, this God didn't protect any of them. Why do you think he's going to protect you? So bottom line, here's my argument. My argument is your God is no different from the gods of any of the other nations, and he's not going to protect you from us any more so than those gods protected all of those people. And a whole other list, like if you want other references, I can give you other references and you can call them. Pretty persuasive. Kind of terrifying. So what does Hezekiah do? Well, he tears his robes. He goes to the temple to pray. He sends his messengers to the prophet Isaiah and says, Hey, boys, we need to hear from the Lord right now. He gets a word from the Lord, very encouraging, but it's not over. What happens next is the king of Assyria, who grows impatient, says, I'm just going to write a letter. I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to send it to Hezekiah. And... uh, And yeah, we find the letter in Isaiah 37, beginning in verse 10. This is the king of Assyria speaking. He says, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So he's saying, here's my message beginning right here. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Why? For behold, surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of those nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed. You know what? Let me give you another list. Like, I guess the first list wasn't persuasive, so here's some other ones. Gozan, Haran, Resef, the people of Eden who were in Telassar. He starts naming kings. Where is the king of Hamath? Where is the king of Arpad? Where is the king of the city of the Sepharvaim? Where is the king of Hena? Or of Iva? He's like, look, if you think that's difficult to say, which it is, by the way, You should go try to conquer those guys. And yet, they've been impaled. They've been beheaded. They're destroyed. So what else does he say? Nothing. He just drops the mic right there. He's like, if you can't get the message that your God is just like the gods of these nations and they didn't do any good for those nations and this God is not going to do any good for you, I, I don't know what else to say. Like, that's it. That's the deal. And so here's what I want to do. I want to look at what Hezekiah does, and I want you to see it, but I want to wait. First, I want you to write a letter, and you don't need a pad of paper and a pen or anything like that. You already know the narrative. You already know how it goes. What I want you to do is reach into your heart and mind, and I want you to take out of it the voice of your greatest enemy. And I want you to ask yourself before God, what is your greatest enemy, your greatest failure, your sickness, your whatever? That person, that thing. What is it saying to you in this moment? This season of your life. What is the voice of your greatest enemy saying to you? And I want you to realize, first of all, that if you are a Christian, like if you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that is the offer, and it's always the offer, by the way, if you're not, that voice is saying whatever it is that it's saying to someone for whom the infinitely righteous, infinitely valuable, King of kings, Lord of lords, Son of God, Jesus Christ, suffered and died and gave his life to claim for himself. That voice is speaking to someone in whom God himself lives by his spirit. That voice is saying whatever it's saying to someone, if you're a Christian, okay, to whom all the promises of the Lord belong. That voice is speaking to someone who is a son or a daughter 
of the king of the universe and who enjoys all of the special status, if you will, and favors of a child. And listen, our children have special claims on us, don't they? I mean, they just do. I remember years ago, my son was like in sixth grade or something. So this is a while. And he was here at Bethany Christian School. And he had already broken one of his hand, you know, his hand because, I mean, he's a boy, you know, so that's just the way things roll. And so he had this cast on his hand and he fell in PE and he landed on the ground with his mouth on the cast and then a kid fell on his head. It gets better. It gets better because this is, those of you who love gore, stay with me. Otherwise, put your fingers in your ears because you don't want to hear this. So he had braces and it, it rammed his braces underneath his gums. Like I couldn't see them. Oh, but I was in a meeting, you know, so they came to get me. I'm like, listen, just tell him he's going to have to wait. <laughs> this is important. We've all arranged our schedules here. We got a lot of man hours invested. No, I got up. I'm like, sorry, I got to go, you know, take the kid to the orthodontist. Get the braces out of the... <sighs> Nasty. He's my boy. If he's your boy, I'd have called you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I probably would have met you at the orthodontist, you know, like, but really, you are a child of God. What is the voice saying? Because it's not just saying it to you, it's saying it to him. And you know what it's saying? Because I don't even need you to write the letter, no matter how it's iterating the phrase. It's saying you can't trust in God. It's the message. Every one of these voices is just saying the same thing. You you can't trust in God. So I'll give you an example. Maybe you're a fearful person. You're like, Tom, I'm a fearful person. Fear is my enemy. (laughs) You wouldn't raise your hand to do it because you'd be afraid, right? But I understand that. I get that. I'm not into that either. I'm going to raise it in here. I'm a fearful person. Fear is my enemy. And now you want me to tell you what fear says to me? I mean, it depends. What are we talking about? Are we talking about marriage? Because then it says this. We talking about my kids? Because then it says this, my health, this, their health, this, my business, this, my finances, that. I don't need to hear what it's saying in all of these different areas. Here's what it's saying. You can't trust God. That's it. That's the whole message. You got a menu of options. Go with that. Because you can't trust him. And when you don't trust him, what happens? happens to all of us. We're fearful. We become fearful about our finances. Why? Because we don't trust God with our safety and security. We trust our money instead. And so then anything that threatens our money, we're bowed up against. Why? Because that's our God. That's why. We become fearful about our health because we look, for example, at our family or at our business or at our ministry or at our whatever, and we think, good grief, if I got taken out of the game, what's going to happen to these people or this thing or this thing that I built because we trust ourselves for their safety and security, not him. We become fearful about how our house looks or our car looks or our body looks or our clothes look or our kids look or our marriage looks or really probably our whole life looks because we don't believe what God says. We don't trust in his word when he comes to us and says, let me tell you why you have value and it's inherent. It's, it's in you. You don't have to prove anything to anyone because you're mine. I gave the life of my son for you. Like how much more value could you possibly have? And yet we're trying to get value out of the opinions of other people. And so we got to keep all of these plates spinning and everything has to look perfect all of the time. And it's absolutely exhausting. We're fearful. 
So take up the voice of your greatest enemy and then realize that whatever it's saying, it's not just saying to you, it's saying to your heavenly father. And what it's saying is you can't trust God. And then realize thirdly that that's a lie. That's the shift. That's the game changer. Hezekiah is given a letter, and in it, it's full of lies. So what does he do with it? He takes it to the Lord. Verse 14, it says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And then Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. It's awesome. And then he just spread it before the Lord. He's like, hey, we got a letter, you and me. And I want to be sure that you've read it. Here it is. This is our problem. What are we going to do? He's right on. And listen to his prayer and listen to what he says in the prayer. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. What? You are, I love the next word, the God. He uses the definite article. And if you're not an English teacher, that's that word, the. He doesn't say, you're one of the gods. You know what? Not only that, you're probably one of the more powerful gods. No, no, he's like, no, you're the only God. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, hang on. What is he saying? He's saying, God, you are holy. God, you are different. God, you are other than. This whole menu thing, I tried that. Need to apologize, by the way. Tearing that up. Graciously, the Lord, by the way, basically takes the menu out of his hand, doesn't he? He puts him in a spot where he doesn't have any choice, really. I mean, if you think about it. And that's a gracious thing. It's a good thing. He's like, God, in my heart, I honor you as holy. For you have made heaven and earth. And what does that mean? It means that you, God, stand above heaven and earth. It means that you are set apart from heaven and earth. It means that you are the originator of heaven and earth. And it means that this Assyrian army that is absolutely terrifying to me, Hezekiah, in this moment, and all of my people are freaking out, and we're surrounded, and they have, in fact, destroyed everything and everyone, and none of the gods have stood up. I mean, they're right about all of this stuff. This is nothing to you. In fact, if all the armies on the earth gathered against you, you'd be like, really? Come on. You know, you just shoot them down with a little insect spray. Stamp the ones that get away. Like it. God is not freaking out right now. Not in that story and not in ours. He's like, let me get my theology right. So you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Oh, Lord, I'm saying, I know you know this. I'm just repeating this. Like, I want you to know that I know this, and it's good for me to hear it. And so incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have, in fact, laid waste to all the nations and their lands and have, in fact, cast the gods of all those lands into the fire. But here's why. Because they were no gods. They're just the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. And then he says, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. But what is his motive? It's beautiful. He doesn't go, now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, because I was paying attention with that impaling thing. And I'm thinking, 
that's going to be uncomfortable. Oh, you know what? I would not want this to happen to my kids, but that's what's going to happen if you don't save us from a sin. All our people beheaded or taken as concubines and slaves, like, I really, really, really would like to avoid the discomfort of that. Doesn't even mention any of that. Like, that's not even part of the conversation. He doesn't even have that on his mind. That's what drives us to the Lord, though, doesn't it? Lord, deliver me, because I am really in a bad place right now. Hezekiah's like, no, just set that aside. Let me tell you what the real issue is. He says, oh, Lord, our God, save us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. You're different. You're holy. Faith in them is death. Faith in you is life. And God, your name means more to me than being impaled or not being impaled. Beheaded, not beheaded. Kids taken, not taken. The issue, and it prevails over every other issue and everything pales in comparison, is your name. The world needs to see us trust for hope in you. Because when they do, they'll start asking. They'll get the message. So what does God do? Verse 36, it says, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 soldiers in the camp of the Assyrians. So you kind of get the impression they brought a lot of guys. It's not all their guys, but it's a lot of their guys. By the way, the Bible is not the only place that records this. So the ancient historian Herodotus records this as well, and he says that it's a plague. He said a plague struck them and just wiped out a whole bunch of these guys, which is a naturalistic way of describing what the Bible presents as a very supernatural event. And by the way, the king of Assyria, who's here for this, understood this as a supernatural event, and incidentally, as I'll show you in a second, all the kings of Assyria after him understood this as a supernatural event. In other words, he had challenged the God of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem didn't come out to fight. The God of Jerusalem came in in one night, wiped out 185,000, maybe by means of a plague. But the king of Assyria got the message. It says, and when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these 185,000 soldiers were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, went, oh, crud. (laughs) Thankful I'm alive. We got to get the rest of our guys out of here before they're wiped out. It says, then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home. In 2 Chronicles 32, it says that he departed and returned home with shame on his face and lived in Nineveh, where, by the way, he was murdered by two of his sons in his temple, and then a third son took over as king. So, fascinating. But I want to show you a map of the kingdom of Assyria at its fullest expression. So this is a few kings after Sennacherib. Everything in yellow is Assyria. It's remarkable. I mean, you can see they just gobbled up most of the stuff to the west. They gobbled up or to the east. They gobbled up a bunch to the west. They went north. And then they came south. Look at that. They came all the way south down to Egypt and then down the Nile River. It's all yellow. <laughs> except for one place. You see where that is? Jerusalem. You can see it back here. Jerusalem. 
there's this orange spot, a hole in the midst of their kingdom. Why? Because Sennacherib got the message, oh, and then the king after that got the message, oh, and then the king after that got the message. That the God whose people live in that city is different from the gods who live in all the other cities. And parenthetically, don't you think that the people who lived in all the other cities got the message too? I guess the question for us is, have we gotten the message that he is holy, that he is different, that he is not to be compared to the menu of options that are really just God's things that we trust in for hope? That that is not for us and that the world needs to see a people who trust in God. Because when it happens, they get the message. Again, Peter says, but in your hearts, at the center of your being, the command center of your life, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Not just with your lips, but by the way that you live. And when you do, okay, well, then you need always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Because when your life and not just your lips are going, yeah, no, I trust in God and and my hope is in him alone. I understand he works through means. He might work through medicine. He might work through dollars and cents. He might work through a plague. He might work through whatever. But I'm looking to him and he is my deliverer. As Ryan said earlier, whether in life or in death, he is the one I look to. So I want to close with one question and one challenge. The one question is this. It is, what is your greatest enemy saying to you right now? And you know what it is, don't you? Okay, so here's what I want you to remember. That if you're a believer in Christ, and that's the offer, he's not just speaking to you. He's speaking to your perfect, loving, heavenly father, who is infinite, which means 100% of his attention is on every one of us 100% of the time. His capacities that the rest of us don't have. You don't have to go get him out of a meeting. And what it's saying to you is you can't trust God. And that is a lie. So here's the challenge. I want you to take some time this afternoon. And I know you're like, oh, man, I got an hour already invested in this today. And this is my Sunday. And it isn't actually your Sunday. Sorry. No, really. I mean, the Bible comes to us with a countercultural faith. And it seeks to create a people who have their own culture in the midst of all of the rest of the cultures in the world. And one of the countercultural things is that this whole day, he claims. The whole day. So take a little time this afternoon and sit down with some three-by-five cards, if you would, and lay the lies, write the lie on one side. The lie is, I don't have any value, and as a result, I'm just chasing after the opinions of people. The lie is, I can't really trust you for my security or for the security of my family, and as a result, my whole life is driven by the pursuit of money or the pursuit of reputation or the pursuit of whatever. Write the lies on one side of the card. And then replace the lies with the truth. It's not enough to just go, that's a lie. You know, it's like with addiction. You know, you have all this destructive behavior that's involved. It's not enough to go, that's destructive behavior, and I'm not going to do that anymore. No, you have to replace the destructive behavior with constructive behavior. We need to replace the lies that we've believed and therefore then organize subconsciously our whole lives around. It's why we say we trust, and then people look at our lives and they're like, no, you don't. And you're like, what do you mean? I don't even see it. You know, like, We've got to replace the lies with the truth. 
So lay the lies that you believed about God before the Lord and replace them with the truth. Write the lie on one side of the card, flip it over, get the concordance out in your Bible. It's going to be cool. It's in the back. It's got all kinds of words in it. And then start looking for things about God, about his character, about his goodness, about his faithfulness, about his nature, about his love for you, about his mercy, about who you are because of what Jesus did for you, about the way that he rejoices over you with singing, like all of these things, about his wisdom, about his perspective, about his power, about his presence. And write stuff like that. The ones that jump out at you, that's what the Spirit does. He's like, yep, that one, put that one on the back of the card. Yep, and and that one, put that one on the back of the card. Write it on the card. Lie on one side, truth on the other. And then for the next 30 days, you're welcome. Read it. I don't know, what do you have, five cards? Ten? Like, I got 48 cards already, right? And there's, there's going to be 32 more at least. And, you know, good. Make, them, make, make a stack. Sit down in the morning. Sit down at night. Sit down in the middle of your day. And read them. Like, when you find yourself going, oh, crud, I got to make everything perfect, for example. Stay, wait a minute. I got to go read my card about where my value comes from. Pull that card out and go, I don't have to make everything perfect. I mean, I, I might try to make everything nice for everybody because that would be a nice way to serve people or whatever, but this is, this is where my value comes from. It comes from the Lord. Get the idea? I'm fearful. I'm overwhelmed. I'm... Replace the lies with the truth. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. But don't do it to be set free. Do it because his name is at stake. And people need to see us trusting in something or someone different from what they trust in. That's really the issue. The freedom is an ancillary benefit. So let me pray for you. Father, God, we thank you for um, for the fact that we are not alone. And Lord, that when the enemy or any one of our enemies speaks to us, they don't speak just to us. That as we come to you and in our brokenness, as we confess before you our idolatry and our sin, all the things that we've trusted in, and all the ways we've robbed you of our lives, we lay that at your feet and we take up the payment made by Jesus. We are forgiven. We are made new. We receive your spirit who lives within us. We become your children, not just like, okay, yeah, we're good. And, you know, you become my employee. No, no, no. We become a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. We enjoy the privileged status of being a child of a perfect parent. Awaken us to the reality that when the enemy speaks, he speaks not just to me. He speaks, Lord, to you. And his voice is one in which he lies. God, give us faith to believe that you can be trusted. Replace the lies that we have believed with your truth. That we might show the people in our world, our office, whatever, what a life looks like that actually trusts in you. Do this for the sake of your great name. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.